The Cultured Meat Symposium 2023 is taking place on November 2nd and 3rd, 2023 in Las Vegas. Join us as we discuss topics of product development and manufacturing of cell-cultivated meat, poultry, and seafood technology. This year, we're doing things a little bit differently, waiving attendee fees and distributing tickets on an application basis. You heard that right. Pre-register for the event to get the latest updates on how you can secure your ticket. Learn more about the event and pre-register at www.cms23.com. Thanks for joining us on the Future Food Show. On this episode, we're excited to chat with Jordan Wolf. Jordan is the founder of Cultured Supply, a B2B purchasing platform for the bioeconomy. Starting with food and beverage ingredients and products, Cultured Supply is focusing on helping companies building more regenerative and local supply chains directly from the source. Jordan is an active angel investor in the climate tech space. His primary investment focus is around full-stack industrial technology and changing our systems of production from a dirty, centralized model to a more distributed and sustainable one. Jordan has more than 20 active investments in his portfolio and is also an LP in an early-stage venture fund. Prior to being an angel investor, Jordan was the co-founder and CEO of Town Partners, a Detroit-based real estate investment and development firm. He started Town Partners in 2013 when the city of Detroit was going through bankruptcy, where he built a commercial real estate portfolio from scratch to more than 500,000 square feet. We cover a lot of interesting information on this episode and look into how cultured supply can help the industry. Jordan, I would like to welcome you to the Future Food Show. Thanks, Alex. Uh, glad to be here. Excited to, uh, to talk uh, further, uh, further about what we're doing. Jordan, I'm really excited to get into cultured supply, but before we even talk about that, tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. So um, I started my career actually on the investing side. So I worked at a firm called Mainsail Partners, and this was back very early in early days of SaaS. And so I kind of cut my teeth at, 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 at the it was a private equity fund. Um, spent a couple years there and learned some great skills, but ultimately knew, you know, I didn't want to be in like the structured fund world for a variety of reasons. Uh, I, after spending a couple years there, I actually went back to this, to Detroit where I'm from originally. And this was actually during the financial crisis and during 07, 08. And, um, I actually decided to stay in the city, uh, at the time, um, because I just, it was something that I was looking for, which was, you know, really kind of meaning it really difficult time for the city. And I was very interested in, you know, working on some on problems that had deep meaning for me. And I'm obviously from Detroit. And so I actually started two nonprofits uh, in Detroit, really focused on attracting uh, young entrepreneurs to kind of help rebuild entre- entrepreneurial community in the city. And through that work, I noticed a really interesting opportunity in real estate. And so I tell people I became an accidental real estate developer. So um, I started a commercial real estate investment and development firm back in 2000 and, in 2008, right before the city was going through bankruptcy. And the whole mission behind what we were doing was actually had nothing to do with real estate. I like to say it was always around how do we move uh, Detroit to a more production oriented economy um, and, and create more localized supply chains. And so um, I was really focused on economic development. So we did a lot of work developing space for small businesses, making and designing stuff. I like to say. 
And the, the investment thesis was, though, that real estate was, was highly distressed. And so we saw a very unique opportunity as two, two, my partner and I, two young guys running around um, to kind of see a unique economic opportunity while having kind of high impact in the local community. And it was pretty crazy. It was, uh, you know, at one point we had over 30 commercial buildings uh, in the city of Detroit. And, you know, ultimately our vision, our vision was really to create kind of like two Brooklyn Navy yards uh, focused on small businesses making stuff, one around food production and one around consumer goods uh, production and household good production. And that was kind of the vision we had, but we knew in order to do that, we would need uh, public public support, not just private capital. And so uh, we un- we were unable to get the support that we wanted for really the big vision, which would have been a really a public-private partnership uh, around creating affordable space for small business. Uh, but on the fortunate side, um, our investment thesis held true, and we we were we were able to receive you know we were able to earn kind of venture level returns on real estate, which was like a very unique situation. But so that's where my interest, honestly, Alex, in supply chains all started and kind of what I call our systems of production. And that's kind of stayed with me, um, you know, for almost a decade now. And um, and so basically about four years ago, I uh, sold the majority of the portfolio and then just started um, full-time, full-time angel investing broadly in climate tech and sustainability. And what happened through that was as I was kind of doing this transition, um, I had my kind of aha moment of where I want, where, where the next chapter, and I believe the rest of my career will be. I um, mean, I listened to this really interesting, um, it was a video, actually, it was like a three hour uh, a three-hour video by Jeremy Rifkin, which is a well—he's a well-known professor and macro um, economist. It was called—it's called the Third Industrial Revolution. And what was really interesting is he breaks down like these seven major economic revolutions, like starting all the way back to hunt, like hunter-gatherer days. And he says it's like very interesting. He talks about how there are these great economic paradigm shifts. Where, and that bring together like revolutions in how we communicate and new energy regimes. It's like change how economic life works. And it also changes like human consciousness. So like when I heard this, it like completely like blew my mind and allowed me to like step back from out of the weeds of saying, where are we going as a species and where are we going as an economy? And so he, so like, I won't go into all the detail, but I thought it was really, really interesting. He explained it, whereas like the last industrial revolution, so we say, you know, like 20th century in the, in the U.S., you know, the, the new form of communication technology was centralized electricity and the telephone and radio and TV. Our new source of energy was obviously oil. And then our new mode of transport um, is, was obviously the internal, the internal combustion engine for, for transport. And so what he basically like says is because all these three kind of major technologies came together, like the whole centralization of, centralization of electricity, oil, and the automobile, um, basically what that did is that enabled kind of the global economy and global trade. So like our consciousness extended beyond just our own country, and it extended around like other like-minded people around the world. And like, that's where the uh, global trade all started to, to really take form. And so then he, and then he says, and this is really was my aha moment uh, on kind of the direction I wanted to go. He said, we're at the cusp of this kind of third industrial revolution where obviously we have a new communication being the internet, um, a new source of energy being, you know, wind, solar, to, delivered on an energy internet. 
And then these kind of new modes of transport, which we won't get into, but kind of he talks a lot about autonomous vehicles and autonomous transport. But basically what he said was these three technologies basically are all going to like ride on top of, you know, you know, the, the IOT networks. He calls it like a central nervous system. And so what he says is, you know, this is really going to enable a more distributed, decentralized industrial revolution. And when I kind of like stepped back and looked at that, I kind of became obsessed with it in, in a way. And then he kind of says all of these things coming together is, is what will create, and I love this term, a biosphere consciousness, where like our expansion is like people and empathy will be to the entire human race and into the entire globe, um, especially around the planet, rather than... Um, rather than what it was in, in, in the previous, yeah, the, the previous industrial revolution. So that was like setting the stage when I, when I heard that, um, it kind of really informed a lot of my investing, to be honest. And so from there, I, uh, I, I started just writing angel checks, um, mostly through my network. And as I mentioned, broadly climate tech sustainability, and I landed on kind of a, the a theme that I got really excited about over the past three years, and I call it the kind of full stack industrial tech. So it's this idea going back to this like whole emergence of IoT connected hardware that's going to transform the way that we make stuff. Um, and so that's been kind of my investment theme uh, to date. And then during that process is when I came across, you know, the emerging field of synthetic biology and industrial and, and, and industrial biotech or biomanufacturing. And this is where my, this is kind of, I just was like blown away because I don't have a background in science or I'm not an engineer, um, but I became completely obsessed with just what was going on just so I could understand it. And so everything from biology 101 videos on, on YouTube, meeting with synthetic biology professors and bioprocess engineers just to understand what was going on in the space and how it all works. And, um, and so like, and what I really realized was, you know, there's this whole new infrastructure that needs to be built from kind of, you know, biotech 1.0, which largely has been kind of, you know, pharma going from this kind of high, high value, low volume molecule or thing that you're growing to more of a high volume, lower value um, thing that you're growing. And, and so like when I saw that, and then I saw all the like really interesting things stuff happening around, you know, low cost lab, lab, lab automation and computational biology, really like dramatically increasing like the simulation and high throughput of experiments, experiments mixed with like the cost of DNA sequencing plummeting, you know, faster than Moore's law. It was just like this, I was like, whoa, all these things are happening at once. I think we're just going to see a, a total like Cambrian explosion of, of invention and innovation. And I realized that it's going to be these breakthroughs that will allow us to really actually, you know, fundamentally change the way that we make stuff. And so, you know, my kind of piece on this was, um, you know, this is actually our chance if we want to like create new systems of production to create a more distributed regional, you know, infrastructure to do this, right? By leveraging all these new innovations and novel molecules and chemicals, ingredients and products. Um, and what I realized is this is an opportunity for us to create new supply chains from scratch. And so, um, and so, yeah, so that's, that was really the background that really, inspired me, you know, for, for cultured supply. And when I realized that it's, it's everything that we want to see, right? This transformation is all about human health, planetary health, supply chain resiliency. And then what a lot of people don't really talk much about, which is where I really geek out on, which is um, local economic development. Because the, the one thing you have, we have to realize is like our last, you know, our, the last generation of infrastructure is, is plugged into this whole 
um, this whole network of centralized uh, electrification and oil. And so it's this kind of, I call it like this take make waste way of making things. So you take something deep out of the ground um, and you have to take whatever you take deep out of the ground, you have to go to where that natural resource is. And moving that to more of a great, a grow, make, reuse model um, is just like really, really fascinated me. So, you know, how my, 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 my question is, how can we move from these kind of extractive means of production to a more additive means of production? Um, and that was really the, the inspiration behind Cultured Supply. I like that. And maybe we could put a link from that reading that you mentioned earlier into the show notes. I think that could be a, a whole nother discussion itself. But I think that's a very interesting way how to approach or get to a certain point. Before we get into culture and supply and exactly what that is, I do want to talk about Detroit a little bit because on the internet, sometimes, you know, we see discussions about Detroit that are that it's not such a nice city or that it needs a lot of help. But I have been to Detroit after the the 2008 and it's a really beautiful and now thriving community and there's a lot of maybe I should say the word hipster districts that are that are super cool and so maybe tell us a little bit how is the Detroit culture today oh man you, you, you're <laughs> uh, this might take a couple hours now no, I'm just kidding. Um, no it's, it's, it's a great question so Detroit's such a unique place because I think what um, so what people don't realize is, you know, back in the basically 20s, 30s, because of the automobile industry, it was essentially it was the Silicon Valley of, of, uh, of the U.S. because there was so much wealth created there. And then all the supply chains and industries in and around the automobile was created. And so they designed the whole city and the, the automakers lobbied for the city to be designed in a way where, it, where it's, it's massive. So I don't have the numbers in front of me. But it is an extremely, extremely large city, and it was really one of the few American cities that were was based around the single family home. So what you have there is a very large footprint, and at one time I think there was about two point two million people living in the city of Detroit, and then you know, and and then it dropped down to about seven hundred thousand people. So basically, what you have is you had infrastructure made for two point two million people. And um, now it was shrunk to 700,000 people. And then you had decades and decades of crime and mismanagement of the city. And then obviously just the deindustrialization of the economy, right? And local production moving out and, and going abroad. And so it really just, it really hollowed out a lot, many parts of the city. And so it's a very, it's a very weird situation because you have a large percentage of population that essentially is functionally illiterate and um, it, it, it is, is facing extreme poverty. And, and that's at the same city. And, you know, we were kind of part of this movement where you have this vibrant now downtown, thanks to like so many great people doing great work um, with small, you know, new businesses moving in, bars, restaurants, just like super good creative energy. And that was like, the, I was in the middle of that and like really helping. My goal was to help kind of create some of that energy. I think where 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 my hope of where it would go and where it hasn't gone I, I i use this term the last thing detroit needs is more 60 dollar chickens and 15 dollar cocktails <laughs> and i think that um i get it because that's you know it's it, there, there's certain market dynamics to that and how, how districts how dis districts come together and how capital works and how markets work i mean that just is a, a portion of it um but i think like really foundational work needs to happen there and there's been a amazing work to improve the city. I just think there, there's a much longer way to go and many things that we need to do to help a larger 
portion of the population. And to be honest, that was really kind of our our underlying mission um, on the real estate side, right? Because like we we need a pathway to put Detroiters back to work, and this largely an unskilled workforce. So, so it's this really weird situation where it's like there's great, vibrant places, super cool places to hang out, great, cre- amazing, creative energy, and then, but then you have this other side, and so um, there's some deep foundational problems there that still need to be still need to be worked on and figured out. I see. Yeah. Well, thanks for that overview. And if you're listening, maybe now is a good time to think about checking out Detroit, whether you just want to visit or, and and this is not a plug for Detroit in in any way, or not a sponsored plug, but I do know that they also have a lot of startup incentives. So if you are thinking about maybe even starting a startup, I've also heard that Detroit is not a bad area. So now let's really get into cultured supply. And for those listening, the links are in the show notes. If you haven't checked it out, already, culturedsupply.com. Jordan, tell us at a high level, what is it and what what is it that you're working on at Cultured Supply? Sure. So, um, so, so it, like, very simply, it's a, we're starting with, it's a B2B group purchasing uh, platform for emerging F&B companies to really kind of discover, test, and purchase more novel bio-based ingredients. So, and what I mean by that is like it's it's it not a marketplace. We don't think of it that way. We think of it much more of a product development engine. So the only suppliers and types of products that we work with or ingredients that we work with are from suppliers that are actually changing our systems of production that I spoke about before. And so it's like these companies going from an extractive methodology to more additive. So what within that, that's companies within biomanufacturing, upcycling, and more um, regenerative forms of agriculture. And we're starting with you know food and beverage ingredients. And you're focusing on more novel ingredients, so you wouldn't necessarily have like soy protein or pea proteins on there, unless there was maybe something special about those types of proteins. Generally correct, but we're now we've just in the past past few weeks since we kind of put this, the the um, the site up, we've been getting requests as well. So we, we're also kind of understanding where the demand levers lie. So we're also kind of playing matchmaker now a little bit. So if there is demand for that. Um, but yeah, that's not the general focus and what we'll, of what we list, what we list on the site. You know, I think one of the things that, to also mention about it. So I'll give a good example because actually we're, we're we're speaking to them right now. They're going to be joining. Um, is a it's a, a a couple that created this kind of mini production facility for artisanal Greek yogurt, right? So our yogurt being one of the most original forms of, of, of fermentation. Um, and but what what's interesting about them, it's not like their actual product is so novel. It's their method of how they're not not only how they're producing it, but how they want to distribute the product. So their like vision is to create a network of these mini factories, more regional factories where they're largely serving food service and food and beverage companies in and around their um, in and around where these factories are located. So we will be adding a Additional products like that, and it's really the common theme is that like everyone that we're working with wants to really fundamentally change the way that like the actual infrastructure on systems and distribution work. I see. Okay, and so that is kind of interesting actually to have that distributed type of facility, right? Something that is also kind of uh, getting us closer to better sustainability practices as well. And that's a really good example of how maybe that product is novel. You have kind of like two markets here, right? You're marketing towards the buyers, and I think you said those are more food service, and then you have the uh, the manufacturers, which then go into the marketplace. Is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. So we're, yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, even uh, drilling it down even further, what on the, on the buyer side, um, we, we kind of, we characterize, we characterize it as kind of um, emerging F&B brands that have alternative distribution models. And what I mean by that is they have a, a direct relationship with their customer. And so in the, the reason why that's really important is because they don't have to go through the traditional wholesale model for purchasing their product. It's a really important point, which we'll talk about. So this would include things like virtual brands, ghost kitchens, you know, uh, multi-unit fast casual restaurants, hotel, hospitality, and also CPG companies that have real like regenerative ingredients as core and part of their ethos as well. Um, but it's a really important part because these companies have three things like that are, that, that, in common with them. They have a direct relationship with the customer, as I mentioned. They have um, unit economics and a business model that can handle some of these higher cost ingredients. And um, and then lastly, and this is like really where the big a big hiccup in the market that we see is, is they actually have chefs and the artists um, on, on their team to really handle a lot of this product development. So that's one of the big gaps we see in the market now is people want to use these ingredients. They just not, don't know how to use them. I see. Okay. And, you, and you, you might even not only kind of show how to use them, but also introduce them to maybe products they had not thought about that could benefit them in some way. That's exactly right. Um, and that's exactly right. And I, you know, one example I like to give, which, which is like one of my, one of my, uh, I can't say too much about it yet because we'll have some news hopefully in the next uh, couple months coming out of it. But essentially, like if you think about these new models of kind of digital first dining and, um, and like a concept of a virtual, virtual brand or a virtual food hall, what these companies really allow for, which is like, this is changing the game around product development is they can go from test kitchen to testing something with their consumer base and their customer base within six weeks. Traditional F&B companies, they might have a year and a half or two year long development cycles. And so when you think about this, this is, this is much more working with buyers programmatically saying, hey, I want to incorporate more regenerative ingredients and these more new novel forms, the work with suppliers, these novel forms of production. And I actually can do things like spin up a Kalkenberger concept or an upcycled bakery. And I can do this in a way that I can test stuff in a very iterative fashion. If it works, great. We can kind of continue to grow that. If it doesn't work, you know, then we can continue to try, continue to try things that kind of push the envelope and help them differentiate in the market. Great. And I guess on either side of the marketplace, whether you're supplying or buying, what are some of the minimum quantities that you're looking at? Is there a minimum? Yep. So it's a really, it's a really good question. So um, this is kind of part of the whole, the, it, it, the minimums different product by product. So you can go look, uh, there's, we have a handful of products with our beta with in our, on our beta uh, platform that you can check out, but they're, they're largely anywhere. It's a total purchase. It can be as low as sometimes $600 or $1,000. So it's, they're not very large purchases. Um, uh, and so the, the idea also being that we believe that this movement, if we want to change the system, we want is going to be needs to be more of a bottoms up movement rather than a top down. And um, that's kind of what we want to help enable and help create. So it's going to be these companies that want to start building with each other's ingredients and create the products and, and doing it in a way where they can access smaller volumes. And because we're dealing with several buyers and we're working with the suppliers directly, um, we have the ability to like for them to actually fulfill some of these smaller orders.
Okay, cool. And so you've launched the beta and the marketplace is starting to fill up. What's next for you? Is it building up and, and refining? And maybe I, I should say that this question is more short term. So what's next in the short term? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So there's um, there's kind of three things in the in the in the immediate in the immediate short term. One is um, we will be adding. So like I said, we're we're very programmatic in how we're adding the suppliers because I mean, obviously all this stuff takes time. So we will be adding additional suppliers like over the next few months. But this is not something. This is not about a volume game of suppliers, right? That's not what we're trying to do. Um, so we'll be adding select suppliers, and then we are going to be working uh, with. The goal is to build up a network of buyers that want to work in a more programmatic sense. And what I mean by that, it's not like these one-off ingredient purchases. It's these companies that want to get into this flow of starting to incorporate these ingredients and these products in these products on their menu. So our goal over the next few months is going to be um, is going to be start launching some of these basically relationships and concepts with the with, with a few of the buyers. And then the the other thing that we're doing in, in the background, which We'll, we'll talk more about later. It's um, it's really about value chain mapping. So we're we're doing a lot of um, grunt work on the back end of mapping inputs and outputs of specific value chains. And the first one that we're going to be launching will be around algae. So if you think about a very easy to use resource, if you want to incorporate algae anywhere along your value chain and you want to build with algae, um, the ability to easily find, source, and procure that um, based upon the thing that you need within the algae value chain. I ask this question because a lot of times on this show, we are looking to be free of animal products. Is your focus to be completely animal free or would you have animal based products on there as well? Not including, you know, cell cultured. Yep, we will. We, we, we will have. I mean, we're not restricted on animal based products. So it's a like I said, this is like a really important distinction, which, you know, you won't really see. It's, it'll come it'll come through over time with really what we're trying to do. It's really, and like, this is why I put more rege like regenerative agriculture in there as well is like, it, this is really about just changing from these big centralized industrialized ways to make things to much more regionalized ways to basically, to, to really, to basically not only make things, but also distribute. So we are not, we won't be, we won't necessarily be animal free. For instance, this, this yogurt producer that we're working with um, is not animal free. Right, right. Okay. And and I guess, you know, looking at the long term, what can this become? Yeah, it's uh <laughs> we have we have a pretty big vision for what for what for what this would be, but I, I always say, you know, our dream would be um what I call kind of one click production for lack of a better term, where it's like if you're someone that wants to build with nature, um to easily search and find the inputs available to be able to source those inputs in your supply chain at, from the source closest to you and make that as easy as possible for people to do the right thing. That's kind of our, that's our North star. And there's a lot of, there's many gaps in the market. We're learning every day and um, there's a lot that needs to be built to, to get there, but that's the, that's the future we want to help create.
I think as as consumers looking in, sometimes we think, why is my produce not grown locally, for example? And then when you look a little bit deeper into the food system, you'll see that it was never necessarily built up to be efficient in that type of way. And so I think what you guys are doing is, is really kind of setting our ingredient manufacturers up for a future that you know maybe we should have thought about earlier, but now is our time to create that. And you're starting to see that more with some indoor farms or vertical farms that are being built right outside of major cities or, or hubs. Uh, outside of Davis in California here, we have something called Gotham Greens, and they're growing different types of, right now, leafy greens, and, and those are sold to local markets. And, and I think in the future, a restaurant or a brand or a CPG manufacturer might be able to go to Cultured Supply and say, I need this, this, or that ingredient, and these are the ingredients that are close to me or are exactly what I need or whatever it may be. So that's a very cool vision. Yeah. And I think, I think something that I, I, I talk a lot about, we didn't even, you know, I think all this was by the way, informed by like the, 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 you know, the, the problem that I keep seeing happen with, with a lot of these ingredient providers today. There's the reason, there's a very strategic reason why we're starting with this kind of idea of kind of the, the direct group purchasing. And, um, but, you know, basically what, what I, two things that I found, I think is important to, to, to note, like kind of the major blockers that we, that we see in the food industry. It's like, obviously as, as anyone in the space knows is like volume is too low. Prices are too, prices are too high. And, um, so you, there's a scalability issue here. Right. And so in the, in the, in the, a lot of, for my investing activity, um, a lot of the conversations around with product focused companies was they, like they, they're they're making something novel or, or new, a new it's just an alternative protein, and then basically they raised some money, and then they, they started to grow. Maybe they started to sell it. They started to get to, at a pilot like pilot scale, and then they're like, okay, I need to raise another round to get to commercial production. I'm going to go to the large corporates. I need to get the the market validation or a supply contract so I can raise my next round of funding to build my production capacity. And the large corporates saying the same thing over and over again, which is like, okay. I'll take as much as you, I, I, I need a, a lot of this stuff at a much lower price. So you need to scale up your production capacity before, before we, we can actually do business together. And so there's this constant chicken and egg. And I get it because scale matters so much in production. And so this was kind of part of the way that one of the things that, that we identified is like, well, we need to start pulling some of this demand forward in a more bottoms up way um, rather than having to go to that large corporate or that large to get that strategic investment to go into that like traditional um, I guess system of I guess you know wholesale distribution and, and the technology that was based upon the last this last industrial revolution. I'm not sure if you've publicly announced, but do you have any plans for fundraising for Cultured Supply in the near term? Nothing in the near term. Um, you know, to, to, to be candid, we're, you know, it's all self-funded and we have a great team uh, working on it. And, you know, I think what we're really focused on is what we're doing is what we're doing is that easy, <laughs> of course, uh, but it wouldn't be fun if it, if it was. And, but so this really, these first six months that we're like really jamming is, is really about really continuing to listen to both um, the needs of both the suppliers and also, and more important, also important the buyers and so one of the things that we that we launched alongside these kind of hand you know the handful of beta suppliers and campaigns uh, is a is a procurement hotline 
mind. So what we have found has been very interesting is we started having companies reach out to us with their like their their procurement and sourcing needs. So we're starting to understand a little bit more where demand levers lie. And what's interesting about that is then it allows us to start thinking about, you know, when you think about, you know, buyers in 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 aggregating buyers doing it obviously by product and by geographic region because that's actually something really really important you can't kind of have a spray and play approach to this and it and it be successful i see i want to knowing that our audience has uh, listeners that are in cell cultured meat companies precision fermentation companies what pitch would you make to them to join the platform yeah, I would I would say, you know, it for me it's very it's very simple, which is I think that from all the conversations I had the pe- people that everyone that's been get, from the variety of backgrounds that have been the reason why they've got got involved in this type of work is they want to truly make an impact obviously on both human and human and planetary health. We have to change the way that we make things especially as it relates to um, especially as, as it relates to how we treat livestock and, 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 and looking at alternative sources of protein. And one of the things that I say is if we want to create system level change that lasts for generations and generations, I be, and if we want to see a um, systems of production that benefit local communities and that 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 can actually change the way that um, how we get more fresh and more nutritious food to people's plates. Um, I believe it's going to have to be done. It's all these things will, will take time. But I believe that a big portion of this is a bottoms-up approach. So I think that if you want to be part of a group of uh, a community of people that are really looking to change the way not only that we make stuff, but how kind of the underlying distribution for that works, then I would highly encourage them to come to, to, to come take a look at what we're doing. And I, it, it's a really important thing. And I'll, I'll give you a little tangent here because this, this was very, this played a very, it's always been in my head for literally, literally almost a decade. So my, my, my wife, who I mentioned it was, is from France originally. When she moved to Detroit, she started make she started her own chocolate lava cake company. So Fondant Chocolat in French. And she had this great little business. She started selling at the farmer's markets and then it just started growing from there. Then she started doing catering. Then Air France picked her up and her cakes were served on, on the airplane between Fran- Detroit and, and Paris. And this, it just started growing. And then she came to this, this impasse where she had to make the decision, do I want to get bigger distribution? And so she decided to go get bigger distribution with a a group of local and regional supermarkets. But the only way she could do that is she had to go through the traditional wholesale, the, the traditional wholesale model. And in order to do that and make the numbers work appropriately, she had, she would need to, um, sacrifice some of the quality and the ingredients. And it was something that she was not willing to do. And so I, I realized that a lot, especially the CPG companies, but if you're a food company, um, working in this space where margins are already tight, um, you're kind of left with two, two options right now. If you want any type of real distribution, you're left with a direct to consumer approach, which is a whole different thing, which is just becoming more and more difficult to make the numbers work. Or you're, you have to go through the wholesale distribution model. 
And it's, you know, I call it the 50-50 model where everyone needs to make their 50 or even 30% margin to get on, to get, to get on the shelves of the retailers. And like, and then the companies don't have any other choice. And so like, I don't believe that we're going to, we can create system level change through that model. I actually believe that where the big hiccup comes is at the distribution level. And if you think about it, it's because the, the way that distribution works, it's connected to this last, like, I'm going to go back to what I started with this last generation of, of systems of production um, that's based upon the centralization of electrification and oil. And so it's, it's not based upon the distribution, not based upon servicing a more distributed regional infrastructure. And so I think that's where the challenge is. And by the way, I think that challenge is in the same for all industry, not just food and beverage. So I think that is where the big um, problem that I see. And so that's part of the problem we want to help. We want to help, okay, maybe can we, can we create a, a better system? And I think the right way to start with this is, like you said, getting the products in the hands of the chefs and the companies that have direct relationships with their customers that have scale and have the ability to rapidly um, rapidly prototype and try different products on their menus. I like that. And, you know, it's early and now I'm hungry for some lava cake. So. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty, they're pretty good, man. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. You can check out Jordan on LinkedIn. Jordan Wolf and Cultured Supply is currently live in, I guess, a beta format at culturedsupply.com. And we'll put those links in the show note. Jordan, do you have any last insights for our listeners today? The last thing I would say is, you know, we, we're, we're, just, we're, we're just having, we're having a lot of fun. And, you know, I think when you're working on, when you're working on such an, I think, important problem and, and working on kind of how do we help create better systems for, for generations to come, it, it's just really energizing. And I encourage anyone to reach out, you know, we're constantly learning, we're making mistakes, just like everyone's making mistakes. And so, you know, we want to understand, you know, and, and connect with other like-minded people because if, if, if we're going to really use this seminal moment of the, these breakthroughs in, in science and technology and engineering to like actually create systemic change, I just think a lot of it is going to come from a more bottoms-up movement. Um, and anyone look, that's looking to be a part of that, we'd love to talk and chat further and, and uh, see what we can, how we can create value together. Great. Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Alex. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. This program was produced by H Media. See you soon.